Well, this evening, I'm not going to ask you at the outset to turn to a passage because we're going to look at a couple of different passages, um, try to get a little bit more in depth this evening on three passages in particular. But if you'd like, you can turn to um, the first one, just keep your Bible open in front of you, which is James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Or excuse me, actually, Exodus chapter um, 3. Let's go to Exodus chapter 3. I don't know if you've heard of the name of um, a man named Henry Francis Light. Henry Francis Light. He was a 19th century Anglican priest. And he was the vicar of All Saints Church in Brixham, England. And he was also a very accomplished hymn writer. And he is the author of the hymn that I'm sure you know very well, Abide with me. Abide with me. Now, Henry Light suffered from very bad health his whole life. And when he was 54 years old, he passed away. And as his days were nearing the end, he asked to preach one last time to his people. And they, they said, how can you do this, Mr. Light? Look at, look at you. You're, you're unable. You're unfit to preach. So I have to preach one more time. And he preached that day, and that evening, he put into the hands of a very loved relative the words of the hymn written and penned in his own hands, Abide with me. And one of the most famous lines from that hymn is this, Swift to its close ebbs out life's little day. Earth joys grow dim. Its glories pass away. Change and decay in all around I see. O thou who changest not, abide with me. As he was facing death, in fact he died, I believe it was, um, a few weeks later. He penned those words. Change and decay all around I see. O thou who changest not, Abide with me. As we grow in age, we learn more and more that change and decay in all around I see, even in me. This world is changing. Houses are built where once there were secluded woods, lakes. Remember, traveling with uh, Brother Walters up to the Panhandle a little while back and going to see where he grew up, and boy, things have changed. Things have changed. Things have been built up. Things have been tearn torn down. Things have changed. Everything changes. Technology has changed. But a lot of change in technology. We all carry an iPhone. We all know that technology has changed. My brother and sister-in-law have vacuum cleaners that are robotic and nobody even has to push them. They just clean things by themselves. Technology has changed. Our country is changing. I spoke this morning about in Sunday school what was once considered morally wrong and detestable is now celebrated, now considered morally upright. The religious landscape of our country is changing. In the Atlanta metro area, it's said that there are about 84 mosques. 11 Islamic schools. Our country's changing. 
We are changing. Have you looked in the mirror lately? You're changing. Some of us, our hair has gotten gray. Some of us, our hair has ceased to exist. But nonetheless, we're changing. The young lady that we married looks different now. The man that we married, or that looks different. We're getting old. Er, we're changing. Our bodies wear down. Our minds fail us. And inevitably, all of us, all of us, are decaying. Realize that all of us are dying. We're all changing. Change and decay in all around. I see. And in a world like this, where do we have any stability? Anywhere to rest our souls? In a world where ideologies and philosophy and morality and even the physical changes constantly, where do we have to rest our souls? Are we to live in endless anxiety and a constant search? No. I'll give you the words of St. Augustine, or as he's known as a saint. We are all saints who know Christ. He said this, Our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. We rest in him because he never changes. He never decays. He never alters. He never gets better. He never gets worse. He never grows. He never diminishes. He never ceases to be what he was not. He always is the same. He is the unchangeable God. And as the hymn writer said, change and decay and all around I see as he's about to die. What does he say? Oh, thou who changes not, abide with me. And he would. Oh, thou who changes not. A fundamental attribute of God is what we call his immutability. God does not change. And that's what I want us to meditate on this evening. God's immutability. He does not change. I want us to consider three things. First, the challenges to the immutability of God the foundation of the immutability of God, and then the scope of the immutability of God. It's very important we understand this, brothers and sisters. We cannot have rest in a restless world unless we understand the God who changes not. First place, there are some challenges. Now, I want to start here because this idea, this truth can be misunderstood if we're not careful. If we're not careful. So I'm going to try to answer some common misconceptions. I want us to be clear about what we mean here. First of all, if God doesn't change, then why should I pray? If God doesn't change, then why should I pray? If God does not change in His purposes, doesn't change in any of His attributes, then does my prayer have any effect? I think that's a fair question. And if we're not careful, we could get in our minds, God never changes. He's the sovereign God who never changes. We can almost get to the point where we think that prayer is just an act. 
He's going to do whatever he's going to do anyways. But that is not the case. In the first place, we're commanded to pray. In Luke chapter 18, the Lord Jesus spoke a parable to this end. The Bible says that men ought always to pray and not to faint. We're commanded to pray. So we have to pray because we're commanded to. But in the second place, we ought to understand that according to Scripture, prayer changes things. Things. It doesn't change God. It doesn't change His decree. But it changes things. Brothers and sisters, it was through prayer that God caused the sun to stand still when Gideon prayed. It was through prayer that Hannah was given a son when she prayed. It was through prayer that Hezekiah, the king, had 15 years added to his life. It was through prayer that Peter was taken out of prison and rescued. It was through prayer that Jonah was heard from the belly of a whale. It was through prayer. Prayer changes things. But let me explain. Prayer is what we call a secondary cause. And what I mean is, is this. You think of somebody painting a painting. Somebody uses a paintbrush. They may already have it all mapped out and they know exactly what they're going to paint. But they decide to use a certain paintbrush to paint. Well, God has decreed not only the end, what will be in the end, the result, but He's decreed the means, how He will bring that to pass. And God has decreed that through prayer, He will bring about His purposes. So far from prayer, excuse me, far from the immutability of God making us feel like we shouldn't pray, it should give us a backbone to pray because we understand that God has decreed through my pitiful praying to bring about what He has purposed. The second place, somebody might ask this question, if God doesn't change, then why does the Bible say He repents? Why does the Bible say He repents? Well, in Exodus chapter 32, the Bible makes very clear, uh, verse 14 says this, And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. So the Lord repented of the evil. Now, evil there is not moral evil. Evil there means calamity. It's just the translation there. It's not wrong by any means, but that is what it means, calamity. Now, if you remember, God told Moses because of the sin of Israel in making the golden calf, I'm going to wipe these people off the face of the planet. And I'm going to begin with you, Moses. But Moses sought the face of God. He interceded. And he said, Lord, please have mercy on your people. And after he interceded, the Bible says, the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. Well, if God doesn't change, how can the Bible say that God repented? Well, there's a couple of things to take into consideration. In the first place, God speaks in human terms. God is spoken of as having, as I've mentioned before, eyes, hands, an arm, a body, but He doesn't have any of those things. 
They're human terms. God does not repent in the sense of a man's repentance. He does change, but not like a man. So first place, understand, this is not speaking in the way that a man's repentance is equivalent to God's repentance. He's just using human terms. In the second place, we need to understand this. God changes in the way he treats his people when the people change. Not because he has changed, but because they have changed. Let me explain. Think of in your minds a pillar that has four sides. That pillar never changes. It's a pillar. But if I walk around to the back side of that pillar, I'm seeing a different side of that pillar. The pillar's not changed. I've changed. And because I've changed, now I'm seeing a different side of that pillar. When I am in Christ, I have the blessing and favor of God. But when I am not in Christ, I have the wrath of God. God has not changed. I have changed. And therefore, God changes in the way he deals with me. And the third place, God promises in his word that upon the repentance of his people, he will turn to them in mercy. So we think about God repenting. It's not in the same way. Another helpful illustration is one that was given by um, an, an old, old, old theologian. He said that the sun melts some things, hardens some things, and scorches some things, but the sun never changes. Third, if God doesn't change, then is God cold and unfeeling? If God doesn't change, is God cold and unfeeling? By no means. The Bible describes that God has affections and that God has a heart. It even talks about God being grieved. You need to understand that God has affections. God has a heart. God feels. God has pleasure. God has delight. God has anger. Just because God does not change does not mean that God is cold and unfeeling. And you can look at Judges chapter 10 and verse 16 to see how God grieved over Israel. Now, I just want to set that before you. So we must understand that God not changing does not mean that nothing we do makes any difference. God not changing does not mean that God does not act differently towards people. God not changing does not mean that God is cold and unfeeling then I want you to see the foundation of God's immutability. Excuse me. That's a hard one to get out sometimes. Immutability. And the foundation of that is found in Exodus chapter 3. Now, we've already been there in our study of the attributes of God, so I'm just going to touch on this very briefly. In Exodus chapter 3, if you remember, we looked at before verses 13 and 14 in particular, noting 15 as well, that when God came to Moses... He said, Moses, I want you to go to my people and to tell them that they will be delivered. And then if you remember, Moses said, Lord, who am I? And what will I tell them when they ask me who sent me? And the Lord told Moses, you tell them, God said unto Moses, you tell them I am that I am. Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, in verse 14, I am hath sent me unto you. And when we looked at this verse a while back, we talked about how God 
is the I am. The Hebrew verb to be, to exist. That God exists in and of himself. We talked about what we called his aseity, from himself. He exists from himself. He was not created or begotten. He exists of himself. He existed eternally. And we talked about how he is necessary. Everything else can be and cannot be, but only God must be. He's not dependent on anything. He's absolutely supreme. He's the absolute being. He's the I am. But remember, we made the note there that the application of this name to Israel at this time was that God had not changed towards his people. That although they had been in the bondage of Pharaoh, God was still their covenant-keeping God. He was still the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I am! He's saying, I've not changed. I am that I am. I'm Jehovah. And the name Jehovah really is coming from the root I am, the Hebrew verb to be. The foundation of the unchangeableness of God is that He is the God who is the I am. Think about it. If God is perfect, if He is the only perfect being who existed before anything and existed of Himself, for Him to change is for Him to no longer be perfect. Because for something to change, it ceases to be what it was. If God is perfect and the I am, for Him to change, He would cease to be the I am. He would cease to be what He was, which means He's no longer the I am. The God who is. The foundation of the unchangeableness of God is that He is I am. So you could say something like this. The I will be of God is founded on the I am of God. Changeableness in God is not conceivable because He's the I am. And then I want us to look at the scope of God's immutability and these, this will be where we'll turn to a number of passages. How far does God's immutability extend when we consider God? It extends to all of God. And it extends to all of His decrees and all of His purposes and all of His promises. They're all unchangeable. In the first place, I want us to see this. All of God's attributes are unchangeable. We find this in Malachi 3 and verse 6, For I am the Lord, I change not. I change not. That means all that God is does not change. And you can't take apart one of God's attributes from God. God is all that He is. You can't divorce anything from Him. He is all that He is. His holiness is a loving, just, truthful holiness. You can't take His love away from all that He is. God is all that He is. And He does not change. He is infinite and comprehensible, as we said, and that never changes. He is love, He is holiness, He is justice, He is truth, and that never changes. 
Now we can look at a number of different examples of this in Scripture, but I want to turn you to one in the book of James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Look at verses 16 through 17 and just think about the unchangeableness of the goodness of God. The goodness of God. In James chapter 1, we read this in verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man. So the people that James is writing to have a wrong idea. They feel that perhaps their temptations are coming from God. Well, James sets out, sets out to correct this error. He says, but every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust. Skip to verse 16. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And what James is saying is this. God cannot tempt any man with evil, because there is no evil in God. He is good. And every good gift and every perfect gift comes from God. No evil gift comes from God. Nothing evil comes from God. Only that which is good comes from God. And James says, listen, He's the Father of lights. He's the Father who is pure. There's no impurity in Him and there's no shadow in Him. He doesn't turn. He doesn't know any variation. He is good. And He never changes. He's always good. You know what this tells us? God only gives you what is good. He withholdeth no good thing from them that love Him. Only good and perfect gifts come from God. And how often are we tempted to think, this has come to me. But this cannot be good. God always and only gives good gifts to His people. It might be bitter, but it's the medicine you and I need. It might be hard, but it will bring great glory to His name. It will cultivate Christ's image in us. He only gives good gifts. So when you're tempted, this gift is not good. Lord, how can this be good? Remember, He's the God who never changes. He can't change. No matter how black the gift may seem, no matter how much pain it may bring, no matter how much difficulty it may bring, only good and only perfect gifts come from God. He doesn't change. He can't change. And he's saying, my child, I've given you a good gift. I've not given you an evil thing. I don't give my children the stones. 
I give them bread. I don't give them scorpions or serpents. I give them what they ask for. I give them good gifts. I'm a good father. And the immutability of God with respect to his goodness is where we can rest. When things come our way in life, we need to rest on he who never changes at his goodness towards us. The second passage I want us to turn to as we look at the fact that God's decrees are immutable is Numbers 23. Numbers 23. God's decrees can be defined as the catechism does his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Everything God has decreed, everything God has purposed will come to pass. Psalm 33.11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. Isaiah 14 verse 27, for the Lord of hosts hath purposed and who shall disannul it? His hand is stretched out and who shall turn it back? All of God's decrees are unchangeable, but I want us to consider and meditate on one. God's decree to bless his people. Now, in Numbers chapter 23, verses 19 through 21, we find Balaam prophesying. You see, Balak was the king of Moab. And Balak was afraid of the people of Israel. So he called a prophet, so to speak, named Balaam. Balaam was a shady character, but he called Balaam. Balaam, I want you to curse Israel. And so Balaam tried to curse Israel the first time, and he couldn't curse them. For some reason, he just couldn't get a curse out of his mouth. So Balak says, well, it must be that you've seen the, 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 the vastness of the armies of Israel, and that's why you can't curse them. So let's go to another place where you don't see Israel in such a great light where maybe there's just a few little homes or something like that. And then you can curse Israel. But Balaam says, I can't curse him again. And in verse 19, the Bible says, Balaam says, God is not a man that he should lie. Neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said and shall he not do it? Hath he spoken and shall he not make it good? God's not a man. He doesn't change. He doesn't decree something and then take it back. He has decreed his purpose to bless his people. And it's irrevocable. He even says here, behold, in verse 20, I have received commandment to bless. He hath blessed and I cannot reverse it. What a blessed text. God has commanded to bless, and I cannot reverse it. The devil is called the accuser of God's people. And the devil would curse the people of God. Look at them and all their sin. Look at what failures they are. You can't curse me, Satan. Because God has decreed to bless, and God says, I cannot reverse it. Maybe your own heart would rise up to curse you. 
Remember the word of God. I cannot reverse it. You are blessed. Blessed forever. But I want you to see something further. In verse 21, He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. Now this is said to physical Israel because there is no apostasy at this time, but this can be said about spiritual Israel, which is you and I, the New Testament church. I have not beheld iniquity in Jacob. Now what's behind that statement? It's this. It's the work of Jesus Christ. And I want you to understand that the unchangeableness of God extends to the God-man. There is a man in the glory and he will always be the God-man. Do you realize that when, when the Son of God took upon him a human nature, he would never, ever again relinquish that human nature. But for all of eternity, Christ is the God-man. And for eternity, before the throne of God, five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. He will ever be the God-man. There's a man in the glory. A man who is the second Adam. All that are in him receive life and justification. A man who is our head, our covenant representative, who has borne all our wrath, who has obeyed the law in our stead, and forever and ever and ever there is a man who represents men before the throne of God. And so God says, I cannot curse my people because I don't behold any iniquity in Jacob. For I have made him who knew no sin to be sin for them. He became sin that they might be made the righteousness of God in him. In Him, Paul says in Ephesians 1, blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. I am blessed. You are blessed with all the blessings of the covenant, with pardon, forgiveness, adoption, your sons, your daughters, justification, imputed righteousness, all the blessings of the covenant. The law has been written on your heart. You've been made a new creature. Glory is yours. All the blessings of the covenant because of what Jesus has done. God can never revoke His blessing because there is an immutable God-man before the throne of God. And because He will ever be there, we will ever be in union with Him and we will ever be blessed. I cannot reverse it. Brothers and sisters, He doesn't behold any iniquity in you. He says, I don't behold iniquity in, my, in Jacob. I don't see sin in you. 
I mean, he's talking about righteousness as it impu- that is imputed. He's talking about sin that's been pardoned. He says, I don't see any iniquity in you as far as your justification is concerned. Rest in that fact. I love you. You're blessed. When I look at you, God says, I see you robed in righteousness. God knows you. God knows your sin. God knows me. He knows the filthy things we've done behind closed doors. You know your heart just a little bit and you know how wicked you are and God looks down and He says, I don't behold any iniquity in Jacob. How can I curse them when there's no sin? Because I put all their sin on my son. And I cursed my son. The curse of God fell on Jesus. So the blessing of God would be for His people. Christ bore the curse. I can never bear the curse. I can never know anything but the favor and the blessing of God. God has decreed to bless His people. And not hell or earth nor conscience can undo it. His decrees are unchangeable. And I want us quickly and briefly to see, third and last, that all of God's promises are unchangeable. 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 56 says, Blessed be the Lord that hath given rest unto His people Israel. According to all that He hath promised, there hath not failed one word of all His good promise which he promised by the hand of Moses, his servant. Can't we say that as we've lived life through many toils and snares? Can't we say not one promise of his has failed? And in Hebrews chapter 6, we look at specifically verses 17 through 18, we find one of God's promises, and it's tied to the idea of immutability. And verse 17 The writer says, Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of His counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Now I'm going to explain what this means here in the context. Um, just briefly, Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians, I'm sure you know, that were struggling with the temptation to leave their Christian faith and to go back to Judaism. And so the book of Hebrews is full of warnings to those people who are thinking about the possibility of forsaking Christ and encouragements to stay in the faith. In the first part of Hebrews 6, there's a warning. and the second half... There is an encouragement, and this is the encouragement. In verse 12, the writer says, I don't want you to be slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is what he wants them to do, to continue following Christ until they patiently inherit the promises, meaning until they patiently inherit their inheritance, which is glory. Don't give up, he's saying. I don't know if you've ever felt tempted giving up on Christ. 
He says, I don't want you to give up. And then he gives this encouragement. He says, listen, when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, what a great description of God, no greater, he swore by himself. He said, surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Now, God promised to Abraham that he would multiply his seed. This is the promise of the Abrahamic covenant. Not going to go into all of that, but just let me simply say that the Abrahamic covenant includes the promises of the gospel. There's a covenant made with physical Israel and with spiritual Israel. Christ is the seed and the promise of the gospel is in the Abrahamic covenant. I just... Um, read one verse from Galatians, Galatians 3.14, just to prove this to you, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So you see there, we receive the blessings of Abraham. So without going into it, just let me say simply, this is the promise of the gospel in the Abrahamic covenant. And when God promised these blessed promises of the gospel, which ultimately are the promises of heaven and a new heavens and a new earth, he not only gave a promise, but he swore by himself. And so the writer of Hebrews says, God willing more abundantly, God wants so much, he willing more abundantly to show his church how immutable his counsel is, how unchangeable his promises are, he actually added an oath to it and he swore by himself. So God is saying, the promise of glory is so certain that not only have I promised and I have told you that I'm immutable, but I have sworn by my own nature. I've laid my honor and my name and my nature on the line. I have sworn by an oath that all who follow and know Christ will receive glory. And this is an encouragement to the Christians. And he says this in verse 18, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have. It's an anchor of the soul. It's both sure and steadfast and which entereth into that within the veil. The writer is saying this, the promise of God in the gospel is sure. It is steadfast. I can anchor my soul in hope in the promises of the gospel and my hope like an anchor goes into the veil. It's like he's saying, my soul is a ship. And my hope is an anchor that goes into the depths. It leaves earth and goes into heaven. And it lays hold of Christ. And it lays hold of the hope of glory. And he says, it's sure. It's steadfast. And then he adds to it again, pointing to Christ. Whether the forerunner for us entered even Jesus. I'm laying hold of Christ and he's already entered in. 
it's sure and steadfast that I will. And so God is saying, I have sworn by myself, my promise is unchangeable. And this is to be an encouragement to the Christians that they continue to follow Christ. All of God's promises are unchangeable. And especially the one of glory. Now I don't know how often we we experience doubt about glory itself. But I know that believers do. We are following Christ, but the temptation comes to us. Is this really going to end, as John Bunyan said in the Pilgrim's Progress, in the celestial city? Will I really reach glory? Will I really find one day that all this was true and I'm, I'm in glory? And God says, believer, you listen to me. I have sworn by my own nature. I have sworn by myself. You can anchor your soul. It's sure and it's steadfast. I will bring you to glory. It is my good pleasure to give the kingdom to my flock. And Jesus, look at Jesus. He's already entered into the veil and your hope like an anchor has laid hold of Christ. You will receive glory. All the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. He's saying, I promise you, I promise you, child. God is speaking when you lay your head down on your deathbed and it's your final day, your final hour, and it's your time to pass on, you can know I have an anchor for my soul, a sure and steadfast anchor, the promises of God. Lord, you cannot lie. You're the God who never changes and you've sworn by your nature. And I promise you, you will receive glory. I love what Spurgeon said one time to the people he's preaching to. He said, brother, you're speaking to someone to come to Christ. He says, come to Christ. He says, I am resting my soul on this. And if I'm wrong, we'll both be wrong together. But we won't be wrong. And the fact of the matter is, that everyone in this room tonight who is trusting, who has an anchor in Christ and in the promises of God, we will see Jesus. We will see one another. We will be around the throne of God worshiping the Lamb. It's certain. It's a reality. And then anyone in here who does not know Christ will be cast out of His presence forever. God says, I swear by myself. I am the immutable God. And what I have said is true. You can anchor your soul. So brothers and sisters, let us rest in He who is unchangeable. Having an anchor for our souls. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank Thee for thy word. Oh, thank you, Lord, that
you will take us to glory. Thank you that Christ prayed, Father, I will that they be with me where I am and behold my glory. Hallelujah, Lord. Lord, bless our fellowship now as we eat and spend time together. May thy presence continue with us. For Jesus' sake, amen.